Hello, listeners. Thank you so much for listening to our show. You can take your listening further and support our work by becoming a member. Members receive an ad-free listening experience, members-only bonus content, an invitation to join the DSR Network Slack community, a members-only newsletter, and members-only blog posts. For the month of February, take 5% off the regular membership price. Visit thedsrnetwork.com slash buy and enter code POLITICS. That's thedsrnetwork.com slash buy code POLITICS. Thank you. Nine. Twelve. Ten. Twenty-eight. Two. Twenty-three. This is Deep State Radio, coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Hello, and welcome to the podcast. I'm your host, David Rothkopf, coming to you from our nation's capital. I'm really pleased to be joined today by two really, really smart friends. One is known to many of you as A.G., Allison Gill, who is the host of the Daily Beans podcast and a new podcast called Jack. What's what's Jack about, Allison? Jack is uh, hosted by myself and former acting director of the FBI, Andrew McCabe, and it is all about the Jack Smith special counsel investigations, plural, into Donald Trump. Great. Well, we should definitely talk about that. And we also have with us Harry Littman, who is, of course, known to many of you from MSNBC, the Talking Feds podcast, which is uh, spectacular, and uh, his career in DOJ. How are you doing today, Harry? Pretty good. Good to be here. I, we could almost set up a Dixie Cup between me and AG. We, are, we hold down the fort for the border areas of California, happily. So uh, I, um, it's always good to be on with her in particular. Well, people have accused us of using Dixie t- Cup technology, here, but I think <laughs> exactly. we're a little we're we're making some strides as we enter our eighth year of podcasting. In any event, uh, I want to have one of those discussions that never goes away about where we stand with the Justice Department on various investigations of and appertaining to the former President of the United States and trying to read the the tea leaves you probably could have called your podcast tea leaves ag because that's basically what we're all left here doing and let me start with this harry you had an op-ed in the los angeles times the other day in which you sussed out the meaning behind garland appointing a special prosecutor into the confidential documents found in Biden residence or associated facilities. You want to talk about the thesis of your article? Yeah, I mean, uh, probably you and AG have had this experience that with each new revelation of Biden documents, there's the media frenzy of, you know, comparison and, and Biden and Trump lumped together and 30% of people who think Biden should be prosecuted. And, you know, there should be a PSA before every 
one of these stories for 15 seconds, reminding that there is absolutely no basis for a supposition of any criminal conduct on Biden's part and huge basis for for uh, potential charging of Trump. And so the discovery of Pence, I saw as a kind of clarifying event because it shed light on an important threshold question that we still haven't gotten our hands around, which is how frequent is it? He's just, a, for purposes of this discussion, a random guy, right? And he's got documents. And by the way, we're not just talking about presidents and vice presidents. Tens of thousands of senator, former executive branch officials and staffers could have had access. So it, it brought home to me that there's a, a, you know, a big problem that requires some policy solution, the porous nature of the control over classified documents and their propensity for walking out of the White House or where they should be. But that's a 100% separate problem on the other side of a deep, steep, and wide divide between uh, that and criminal conduct. And as to the prospect of criminal conduct right now, that's a category of one. That is Trump and Trump alone. So I just thought Pence served really to clarify the stark divide between a policy issue, but it's not a criminal law issue, and a uh, the criminal law issue that is still um, uh, germinating with uh, the former president. Well, that makes 100% sense to me. Does it make 100% sense to you, Allison? Yeah, and I think some of the interesting aspects of the op-ed by Harry Littman are sort of the way that we perceive Merrick Garland uh, going forward versus the way we may have perceived him up until this point, right? And I'm talking about the Biden-Robert Kerr appointment, not necessarily the Jack Smith appointment. But I think it's you know, it's interesting when we talk about the standards required to open uh, or to appoint a special counsel. Um, and one of the first standards is, is I believe you have to th- believe a crime had been committed and then you can move on to the next caveat, which is. Or at least a criminal investigation is warranted. Sorry is warranted. Yeah. yeah. And uh, when I talked to Annie McCabe on, on Jack, he's like, look, very thin, you know, Probable, below probable cause necessary to open an investigation. But I think it's different with the special counsel regs. But I don't I think where people are getting confused is is when we say, you know, that a crime may have been committed or that a special counsel is warranted, that somehow that must meet the standard uh, necessary to charge a crime, which, of course, is the ability to obtain and maintain a conviction or something beyond probable cause. But it's not really clearly laid out, I think, in the it's it's sort of left up to a subjective decision, which is, I think, where the political considerations may have come in, Harry, which is what you were talking about in your op ed and and how that sort of frames Garland. I mean, we over and over law and the facts, facts and the law, follow the facts and the law. And now there's a little bit of a a political consideration being injected into that. But, you know, I mean. As you say, that's how Washingtonians do. And I believe you quoted him after his uh, thing where he couldn't get a, a hearing about, you know, becoming nominated for SCOTUS in Washington if you want a friend, get a dog. And I, I love that you put that in there. So I think these are all questions worth exploring. And I think it was just a really well-written piece. I'm glad you wrote it, Harry. That's very kind of you. And I, I'll, I'll, I wanted to point out, uh, there's an interesting, we're getting a little inside, but I think not too inside for your listeners, David. 
which is I think there's probably an institutional difference of view about what it takes to open when a criminal investigation is warranted between FBI, potentially, as represented uh, perfectly by Andy McCabe and DOJ. But I'll just make the point that, of course, it's well below what it takes to, to charge but it ain't nothing. And it's a serious thing. We don't think about it because it's Biden and he's a public figure anyway. And we know, but this is what it takes to potentially turn somebody's life upside down and it shouldn't be too casually invoked. But the question, the good question that AG raises is really put to Garland in a, in a very pitched way now that Pence documents are out there. There's basically no reason other than the raw fact of their discovery to think a criminal dis- uh, investigation is warranted in either case. So what does he do? If it's the strict like-for-like like cases, it would seem like you do it, need a special counsel for Pence. But this route lies madness. And I certainly think it, it goes to show that it was something, that there were political considerations with Biden. And I hope he doesn't feel that somehow hands him in to do it for Pence. And now there's going to be more, presumably, right? Who, uh-oh, I have them too. But it puts it puts the, you know, the the Boy Scout in Garland to the test because I think by if he doesn't appoint, which I think is the wiser course, it really tends to expose the that the what's unique in Biden's case is not conduct, not the sorts of things to think about as bearing on criminal violations, but some other X factor, as AG suggests. He's the president. That's that's the X factor, right? <laughs> He's the president. But remember, he did this because when Trump announced he was running and Pence, whatever else to think of him, is a bona fide candidate in 2024. Sorry, David. No, no, I think it's not because he's the president. I think it's because he's a Democratic president and he wants to show that he will do the same thing for both parties. And might not be the case if there were a Republican successor president where the amount of evidence is so low. And boy, I hope he's not intending to appoint a special prosecutor every time they discover documents that shouldn't be in somebody's house. I probably live in the zip code where the highest number of homes have documents in them that they shouldn't. So let's now move into the the main purpose behind this podcast, which is personal therapy for me. Every once in a while, I, you know, I track, you know, this stuff pretty closely. And every once in a while, the patience that is being counseled by people like AG, sometimes by you, Harry, and others whom I respect a great deal, starts to wear thin. And I start to do this list in my brain, you know, because I'm being constantly being told, don't worry, you know, this takes time and you're not going to see anything. And got to be patient and trust Garland. And I'm like, well, do I? Because we didn't follow up on the Mueller obstruction issues, and some of them have now gone past the the period in which they can be prosecuted. The way he handled the Gene Carroll thing, that was kind of ugly. I didn't really like that very much. This case, similarly, he didn't really jump on the special prosecutor thing until after the January 6th committee kind of made it necessary to do so, the Cassidy-Hutchison testimony. So it seemed like they were kind of lagging there. And it's, you know, I could go on. You guys have heard these all thousand times. And, you know, it's, you know, a couple of years after all this has happened. And when is 
enough time. You know, we're well past, we're four months past the amount of time that transpired between when Watergate took place and when indictments were handed down to senior Nixon officials for Watergate. So is that right? I thought the indictments were 74. I've actually counted this out because for about a year and a half, I've been predicting if indictments come, they will come in the end of spring, early summer this year, because that goes with the Watergate timeline. Also, it goes with the Mueller investigation timeline. If you go by the 10 months previous investigation and then appointment of a special counsel, which is exactly what's happened with Jack Smith, that puts us at the end of April for indictments to start raining down. That's when the Manafort and Gates indictments started raining down. But I've been saying that for, for this whole time. That's when I think. And also, that's kind of when you're bumping up against the next election for how far out you have to plan a trial. So it sort of fits uh, all right. In there, I'm not gonna. I don't want to. Dwe- I, mean, I don't want to dwell on that particular schedule. Although, yeah, sorry, I, I come back and make the point at, at, at another time. But Barb McQuaid, our, our mutual friend of ours, has also said this spring. You know, she said this spring. It can't wait too much longer. It gets too close to the election. Something's got to happen in the spring. But there are all these signs, you know, everybody says, you know, be, you know, trust him, but I, you know, should I, well, we like, why, why, if he does the Eugene Carroll thing, why, if he does the Mueller thing, why, if he plays politics with the classified documents thing, why, if he waits on a special prosecutor, nothing, he, there was nothing new that motivated the appointment of Jack Smith, nothing that we didn't know uh, beforehand. Why, if so many of these crimes are in plain sight, does it take so long? So this is therapy. I've made my case. I trust you guys. I know at the end of the next half hour, I will feel much better. Uh, AG, you go first. Well, why is there not the same outcry about the slowness of Fonnie Willis? She has not yet indicted. She could have gone directly to a regular grand jury on the phone call alone, but she wanted to build a big RICO case and she appointed a special purpose grand jury, which is kind of like appointing a special counsel. And so, you know, neither have been in, have indicted any of the leaders of the of the coup. But I think that the focus on the federal tends to probably come from and a lot of people think that I need to don my tinfoil hat when I say this. But there is a movement to discredit our federal institutions. And it's been going on for a very long time. And I think that could be part of it. But. Also, when you take into account, like, let's just look at the Scott Perry privilege issue. They've been po- they've been trying to pry that open since last April, and it's now still it's in the Court of Appeals now. And we're waiting to hear on that on, on February 23rd. It just pushes this out. We're not dealing with the uh, we're dealing with somebody who has learned through failed investigations that he can delay and delay and make lives awful. So. I understand the frustration. We don't really have anything to compare this to in the past, but most really complex investigations do take a long time. Some of them don't. And I and maybe Harry can speak to why some do and why some don't. But I also want to say I don't think that you're going to see any indictments on the Mueller obstruction because of the Barr memo that was written in 2019, which sort of deliberated with the PADAG and, and a couple of other people. That obstruction charges, even if he could be charged, were not that that they shouldn't be. It was a declination, basically, to to charge for obstruction, even if a sitting president could be charged. And so that makes it very difficult. And well, but you know, one one of the the components of that memo was bullshit. You know, I mean, 
Of, of course. It's okay. All, I just, you know, bullshit. I just want to point that out. You know, it's not like, you know, there's a lot of legal merit to some of these decisions that Barr was making. Oh, of course not. And when Merrick Garland picked up that, because Barr said no to a FOIA request to get it, and Merrick Garland picked up that baton, and he argued Barr's arguments, even though he had a much better argument that he might have won on, he didn't. And then when he lost, he didn't appeal. And the memo came out. So, uh, you know, and, and I think that hopefully in the E. Jean Carroll case in the appeals court at the D.C. District Court of Appeals, they will rule that what he said about E. Jean Carroll is not part of his job. And perhaps Garland will not appeal that either. He seems to be arguing the same crap arguments that Barr made and not appealing and not adding any really good legal arguments. So I think that's very interesting. But the fact remains, it's been two years. We're all very tired. We're all very frustrated. But while an indictment is necessary to deter this kind of behavior in the future, it's also not a magic bullet. Everything and all rails of, of democracy need to hold in order to save it. We can't just rely on one man. Because if one man alone could fix it, we would be an autocracy, which is what we're trying to avoid. Yeah, we're certainly trying to avoid that. I always find it soothing, Harry, when I listen to AG. Because she is a hair trigger sometimes. And, you know, when she's being calm and moderate, you know, it makes me think, well, this makes a, a lot of sense. I'm not super persuaded by the what about Fonnie Willis thing. That's a separate case. I'm, you know, the what aboutism doesn't really work with me. And I have to say, I'm not super persuaded by the, the bar argument because that's, you'll forgive me, setting the bar pretty low. But Perhaps you have some other arguments to add to this, which will make me. But I don't disagree. What I'm mostly mad about is that he let the Durham thing go on when we found out from the New York Times about all the misconduct that that Durham. A perfect example. Well, you can only fire a special counsel for cause and ignoring a judge's order twice and going to use a grand jury to spy on an American citizen seems like misconduct to me. That seems like a fireable offense for a special counsel. Maybe I'm. No, no, I literally just came from a lunch with some folks who are in a different agency of the United States government that has a lot of familiarity with some of these uh, cases, and they were just fuming. Please calm me, Harry. So, so <clears throat> lie okay, back on the couch, and here's oh, a sh- tissue. Are you sitting? There, because there's, there's, because there is a lot going on here. I've actually had a few conversations this week. When, uh, on uh, on MSNBC, including one where I kind of got a little bit uh, crosswise with Andrew Weissman, and we had a quick, Saw as Nicole Wallace put it, family therapy session. Okay, so look, um, start with Mueller. That I think was never going to go forward, and there was the you know a, a judgment made before Garland went into office. He wasn't going to relitigate the past. You can take that for what it is and disagree with it, et cetera. What I'm trying to do is sort of build an overall timeline that should give some ground to your arguments, David, but make you feel better now and put a little spring in your step. So I think it's true that they have been a little, they've been slow. Everything AG says is true and very important. There's a natural timeline for prosecutions and building a complex case, especially one where a and failure to get a conviction is disastrous, and a political timeline where two weeks feels like an eternity, and and a big part is the discord between those. 
So, but even given that, I think it's fair to take the department, I don't know, to task, make the observation that while their hands, you know, while he was up to his neck in prosecuting a thousand people for the worst physical attack on democracy in our history, they weren't enough focused on working up against the political branch and the officials. Moreover, the case has always been particularly difficult to move forward because the normal process is to put pressure on second and third circle people and for a variety of reasons, including people's kind of playing Russian roulette with whether the whole, it'll it'll all go past the time for 2024 and Trump will be reelected and he'll make part issue pardons and the like. For whatever reason, the Mark Meadows, Mark Meadows, don't get me started, and Rudy and others have have been and they haven't been able to really crack. But I think it is true that for the first eight months, whatever, six months, they they were a little bit casual and not focused enough on time. I think before Smith, a few months before Smith, that ceased to be the case. Grand juries were meeting. They were and I think part of the frustration and fascination here is that DOJ really is much more opaque than Fonnie Willis, and you just want to know what's going on, and you think of them as the big gorillas as they as they are. But while I would give ground to some of the objections, tell about, I don't know, six months ago, I think we've known about grand jury activity, and they've been in real earnest. And I think when Smith shows up, it's to a staff and and memos and cases and whiteboards and a pretty developed set of facts, especially as it goes to Mar-a-Lago. Separately on the back end is the all the difficulties with January 6th welder of crimes, which we can get to. But I think for cur- I, I the my shorthand defense and, and AG and I are basically on the um the you know Merrick Garland is o- okay. Camp. A lot of people aren't. Basically, after being slow for eight months or more, they are off the dime as much as they can be. And certainly as of today, with Smith, etc., there's no lack of will, resolve, discipline, etc. They're they're focused on it hard. Now, when would that mean for the final um, you know, Hosanna actually come through with uh, indictments? Oh, I'm thinking very smart people have been estimating, say, the spring, as AG has said all the time, would might be the natural timeline. But my bot my but my bottom line, and you can throw away the tissue now, is that yeah, it was a little bit langu- languishing for a time, but it's been a pretty good stretch that they are all in. It's been, uh, you know, he, there's been various signals that at least he's ready to indict or will. I think the odds that he gets and recommendation from Smith to indict are got to be in the 90% range. And the odds that he takes whatever recommendation Smith, and for that matter, her, give him is also in the 90% range. So you put that all together and, you know, people get ready. There's a train of coming. So feel a uh, you know, feel a little, feel a little bit better. My question is a lot of folks that I've talked to, and this made a lot of sense to me, have said that the slow roll in the beginning had a lot to do with the formation of the January 6th Select Committee. 
which was also slow rolled by Republican interference and stonewalling. And the reason that the that 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 these folks and I tend to agree, although you know you're in a much better position to understand this than I am, the reason they had to wait for the committee to be done and get all of the committee's work product is because of what we saw in the Durham Sussman case. We saw a star witness in Jim Baker who told different testimony to the inspector general, Congress, and the grand jury, which totally impeached him. Now, the indictment, the lie was immaterial to begin with, but I think that the impeachment of that witness, because they didn't, because Durham didn't compare his different testimonies and reconcile the contradictions, that helped lose this case. That helped acquit Sussman. Uh, and, And so I I feel like Department of Justice is like, we got to get all those transcripts and we got to look for inconsistencies before we even decide who our witnesses are and put them on the stand so they don't get impeached at trial. So I think that maybe the committee's timeline is also something that slowed down the Department of Justice. Maybe. I don't know. So it's a it's a very good point. And uh, you can there were certain ways people don't really the, the assumption, even from guy, you know, Adam Schiff was. Why is DOJ so much slower than us? There were reasons they wanted to wait because there, there was certain evidence that the committee could collect that the DOJ really couldn't. You couldn't bring in especially targets in the same way and have them talking. That said, I think it's only a it's an explanation more than an excuse for DOJ in the sense that there was no reason, if anything, if nothing else, a whole separate team couldn't have really been... And probably was, but just not with, not with adequate pedal to the metal, pursuing all the things that DOJ has to pursue. It was it's material, useful, helpful to see, like all of us, what the committee was bringing forward and human nature to let the time pass a bit. But you know, they they could have done both. A little the DOJ bit was faster together. than the committee in some of the circumstances. I mean, they had one hundred percent and. Yeah. They had all the East and that's because, yeah. University emails while the committee was going back and forth for eight months trying to get them under crime fraud exception. So 100% in this show, I mean, AG is a, among other things, a phenomenal reporter who's dug deep. And that's what you have to be before you charge DOJ with dilatoriness because, you know, they're doing stuff, but it's hard to ferret it out and sometimes impossible. So it's surely true that they weren't twiddling their thumbs all this time. And if you, and some of what they were doing should be bearing fruit in an event. Okay, now I want to come back and talk about some more of this. And I want to explain to you that June 17th, 1972 to March 2nd, 1974 is less than two years. Picky, picky. I think you said something like four months, as long as you're picking on well, my buddy go. AG now. But so we'll to October, to November, side. December, okay. January, yeah, it's five months. You're right. Anyway, we take a break at this point, so all the people in the general public who aren't members can think about why aren't they members, because then they could hear the rest of this podcast and the rest of other podcasts, and all they do is they go to the dsrnetwork.com. It's going to get even better, too. Exactly, and they click membership, and they pay $5 a month, which is really not that much, just to even hear the rest of this podcast, much less all the others that we do every day. So go do that. And for those of you who are members, stand by. 